We are starting a new series tonight in the book of Colossians. I hope you guys love the book of Colossians. All right. I know some of you, it's your favorite. And this, this graphic, I think, adequately portrays the book of Colossians. It is the supremacy of Jesus. That's what the whole book is about. It's Jesus ruling over all time, over all places, over all cultures, over all peoples, over all invisible and visible realities. Jesus Christ is supreme and he has the supremacy. In fact, Julius Kim, a theologian and author, says this, Of all the books in the Bible, Colossians may rightly be considered the most Christ-centered. In this short letter, Paul goes to great lengths to proclaim the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in all things and for all people. The good news of Christ's lordship over creation, as well as his redemption for his people, rings forth from start to finish in this epistle. And I'm excited for Jesus to get bigger in your imagination, to reign with more supremacy in your life, and for you to lovingly and willingly bow the knee to his authority. Okay? It's a loving rule that he exercises over us. He's not a dictator, and he's not an evil tyrant looking to be filled up by you and I as if he needs anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need us. We need him desperately. And it's good news that he is ruling and reigning even in this September of 2017. Amen? So, though a lot of people in our culture and in our day are trying to claim supremacy, ethnicities, different cultures, different nations, North Korea, Jesus has the supremacy and no one can take it from him. Smaller G gods in the form of demons may try to take his power and think they have authority. The God of this world, Satan, may think he has supremacy and rule, but he doesn't. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, and this is our God. We are his brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Let's pray, and let's dive in. Father, help us in these moments. Help us to see Jesus for who he really is, ruling and reigning, supreme, but yet loving the lion and the lamb the lamb that was slain, that we might have forgiveness by the shedding of his blood. Jesus, thank you for doing everything needed to make us right with you, with your Father. And we thank you for enacting all of this by your Holy Spirit. Help us in these moments. Help us to pay attention. Speak, please, Holy Spirit, to every person. Give us gripping attention. May we not be distracted. May we be helped. And may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not just informed. Please, please, Holy Spirit, you can do this. And we ask that you would move on us in these moments as your word is proclaimed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. So Colossians 1, 1 to 2, we're just going to dive right in because uh, we got a lot to cover in a short amount of time. And so here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul is a Christian hater. He would be equivalent to a terrorist. He is hunting down Christians 
in Acts chapter 6, 7, 8, and then Jesus, the supreme one, shows up in Acts chapter 9 in blazing light such that Paul literally falls off of his horse and says, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus so identifies with his people that when his people are persecuted, Jesus himself is persecuted. And Paul is persecuting Jesus' people, therefore he is persecuting Jesus. But Paul, now converted after Acts chapter 9, immediately goes out and begins to preach the gospel, reasoning with the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, reasoning with the Gentiles that he is the creator and sustainer and savior and judge of the world. Paul, an apostle. Apostle means sent one. That's literally what the word apostle means. Now, Paul was a capital A apostle. There was 12 minus Judas plus Matthias. Paul is the 13th, if you will, apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to go to the Gentiles, non-Jews, and to evangelize and plant churches all over the known Roman world. And Paul did just that. Planting churches, pastoring churches, setting up elders, uh, writing letters to churches. We have 13 of his letters in the New Testament, this being one of them. Who is he sent by? He's an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, the one who is supreme. And this is God's will that Paul was this apostle, this sent one. So Paul here is appealing to the Colossians on the basis of Jesus commissioning him by the will of God. He's pulling his authority for the Colossians to listen to what he's about to write to them because God has willed he be an apostle, God has willed that he be authoritative, and God has willed now that these Colossians be under his authority. One commentator said, uh, it's as if Paul has grandfathered this church to himself because he was not the planner of this church. A man named Epaphras was, who was converted under Paul's ministry. We'll get to Epaphras in a bit. So, Timothy, interestingly enough, is also in on this letter. You see that? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Who's Timothy? Well, you have two letters to Timothy in your Bible, First and Second Timothy. Timothy was converted under Paul's ministry, and Paul calls him in 1 Timothy 1-2, my true son in the faith. We know from Paul's exhorting him uh, that he learned the faith from his mother and his grandmother and Pops is absent, if you will. We learn that where's Timothy's dad? We don't know, but we think because Paul kind of adopts him as his son, certainly his spiritual father. Um, Timothy was a bit timid and maybe with no man in the home, maybe an abandoned young boy. Paul begins to step into his life and not only a spiritual discipling way, but as a father. And More than I think anyone else in the New Testament, um, Paul has Timothy by his side, so much so, and he leaves him in Ephesus to pastor the church there, and he writes letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, encouraging him, strengthening him, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth, take authority, don't be timid, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. This is Timothy, timid, young, fragile, yet by the will of God, to be a pastor, to be over a major church like Ephesus. So, a little bit of background. 
Scholars think, and there's good reason to, that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians while he was under house arrest in Rome. If you follow the book of Acts all the way to chapter 28, Paul is on house arrest, and he's there for a number of years, but he has a kind of freedom to roam about and have visitors and cook dinner for people and write letters to churches. And it's thought most by most scholars that this is where Paul wrote this letter from, from Rome on house arrest to the Colossians. Epaphras was a native of Colossae, and he comes because there's trouble at the church at Colossae. It's a pluralistic society, kind of like the U.S. of A., where there's all these perspectives, all these different views, all these different quote-unquote truths. Choose your own path. Pick your own God. Have it your way. Colossae was much like that. And they're beginning to move away from the gospel that they heard from Epaphras, the church planner, the missionary, to this church. And Epaphras goes to Paul. Paul writes this letter, and Timothy is more than likely with him in this house arrest situation. So some scholars think maybe, maybe he's writing the letter and Paul's verbally dictating it. That could be the case. But whatever the case, Timothy is in on this, and he's referred to throughout the first 14 verses, as we'll see in a minute. Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, this saints is not exclusive to Catholicism, friends. I know a lot of us come from Catholic backgrounds and it's hard to break Catholicism. I was just talking to a lady at Panera Bread the other day and she was telling me that her, her husband was kind of born Catholic. You know, you're like born Muslim, you're born Presbyterian, you're born Baptist, you know. That's not spiritually speaking, that's culturally speaking. But for Catholics, it's so hard for them to break from the church because of guilt and fear that they'll literally say they're Protestant, join a Protestant church, but yet still attend the Catholic church mass and kind of wean themselves off. Anyone know anyone like that? Was that you? Was that any of you? That was one of you. Okay, anyone else? Yeah, this is normal. Like, you're born Catholic and you have to wean yourself off. But see, we think of saints, if you're Catholic and you have a Catholic background, as Mother Teresa and St. Augustine and St. Paul and St. Mark. And the truth is, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. God gave Ephesians 4 apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Anyone who's a Christian is a saint. And Paul here is calling the Colossian Christians saints. And who are these saints? They're faithful brothers. Some translations render that brothers and sisters. That's appropriate. Brothers in Christ at Colossae. So these are faithful brothers and sisters who are saints. Faithful to the gospel. Faithful to hold on to Jesus. Faithful to hold on to what was revealed to them thus far. Paul is now giving them new revelation through this letter. And by extension, us. Colossae was about 120 miles east of Ephesus. Asia Minor, here's Asia, here's Ephesus on the coast, and east, going towards like China, if you will, is Colossae. And it is a Roman province. Now, this is a Trinitarian letter. 
And I know that sounds weird because here we have Jesus up in verse 1. We have the Father here in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then we're like, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, Doug Wilson, a theologian and pastor, says that the grace and the peace is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one that affects, initiates the grace of God to us. Jesus said in John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draw them. The Holy Spirit has to be moving on you in order for you to even get grace as a concept, to get unearned, undeserved favor from God. And what does he produce? He produces peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And so the Holy Spirit is referenced here if you will, as the grace and the peace. It's what he affects and brings. He brings grace. He affects grace and he brings peace. Peace between us and God and peace to your inner being. Are any of you a mess before the Holy Spirit entered your world and all of a sudden you begin to rest a little bit? Not fully, but a little bit. And then as you matured and grew and learned to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, your inner peace kind of rested a little more and you rest a little more and you rest a little more and as you grow listen you will rest a little more and then you can be one who as a peacemaker blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God why because like father like son you begin to bring peace and reconciliation to other people to the saints and faithful brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a standard greeting for Paul and a Trinitarian greeting. All right, let's go to verse 3. We, that's a reference to Timothy and Paul again, okay? So the we here of verse 3 is Paul and Timothy. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a title that's very important. Okay? When, when we talk about God, a lot of people, especially in the United States, fill that word God in with all kinds of error. Right? Is it Allah? Is it one of the six million Hindu gods? Is it a God of my own making? I was at a conference one time with uh, a group I shall leave unnamed to not defame them. Uh, and, and we were told by the spiritual director, the quote-unquote pastor, if you will, leading this gathering of about 200, 300 people, here's what I want you to do. You want to get close to God? I want you to take out a notebook, and I want you to write down on that notebook what you want your God to be. And then I want you to begin praying to that God. And my head exploded into a million pieces. Like I started throwing people around. I'm kidding, I didn't. I... I didn't do anything but like hang my head and like, oh my gosh, like grieving. Like, this is terrible. And you look at all these people like, you know, yes, a God of my own making. This is fantastic. That's an idol. A God that you can carve and create and then pray to. That's an idol, man. But listen, Paul is very careful here. We thank God. Who's God? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. John said in his letter, 1 John, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. And so we can't have God the Father disconnected from God the Son. And as the first century church found out, we can't have God the Father and God the Son without the Holy Spirit either. The triune God. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, God the Father is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the sense that Jesus was not existing, and then God the Father did some kind of creation of him, or as if he was the first angel, or as if he was the second small g God to the Father, and then he created all things through Jesus. No, Jesus is pre-existing all things, eternal with the Father, uncreated. He's Father in the sense of relationship, that he gives himself over to the Father's will. When Jesus conquers all things, he hands the entire universe over to the Father. And then the Father gives the rule back to Jesus. It's this dance, if you will. The Trinitarian dance of love and me before, or I'm sorry, you before me. But the relationship is Jesus is the Son of God. And the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, we always thank God, who's God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now this is brilliant. When we pray, I'm talking to you now, when we pray, not when Paul and Timothy prays. When we pray, is it thankful, flavored at all? Or is it complain flavored more so? Like, that's a good question. Because I'll bet if you had, uh, so you go to Dairy Queen, you ride through the drive-thru, and you're like, oh, a complain milkshake. That sounds delicious. You order it, you taste that thing, you spit it out, because complaining's got to taste horrible. Why would you even put that on the menu? Right? But what we do to God so often is rather than come into His presence with thanksgiving, we come in with complaining. I mean, how much do you love it when everyone comes to you and complains? Isn't that awesome? You're like, please, you put a post on Facebook. Would someone please complain to me? I've gone without complaining for a few hours, and I just really need a fill. When Paul prays, he is thankful. And what's he thankful for? Listen, he's thankful for the Colossian believers. But here's the thing. The Colossian church is in a mess right now. He's writing the letter because there's people about to turn to lesser than Jesus things. There's false teachers entering the church. The church is a mess. He should be complaining. Rather, he's thankful. What does that mean? Listen, guys, if you will search and look and evaluate, you will find things to be thankful for. But listen, it's not hard at all to find things to complain about. You don't have to search. You don't have to look. You don't have to be diligent. They're just there. And it's so easy to complain, even to God. But listen, if you will look, and if I will look, if I will be diligent to search, I will find things to be thankful for. And Paul says, we always thank God. Always? Really, Paul? Yeah, always. Always. We always thank God when we pray for you. And when did that start? Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. You need to see something there. It's easy to breeze right past that verse. Listen. We started giving thanks when we prayed since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Faith means trust. So Epaphras comes with the gospel. He tells of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the forgiver, the judge who was judged. And he says... Believe, repent, believe in the gospel, and they believe. And they receive the grace 
of Christ Jesus. But listen, what results from this salvation? Almost as if they're one and the same. And of the love that you have for all the saints. So he's not talking about, oh, I love St. Augustine. The Confessions is fantastic. I love that book. No. Every Christian, there is a genuine love here coming from these Colossians to the rest of the brothers. Now that's so important that I want to read you a couple cross-reference verses. So this is 1 John 4, 19-21. John says, We love because He first loved us. So our love flows from God's loving us. That's important. God always initiates, we always respond, not the other way around. We love Him because... Why? Because he first loved us. Now listen to this. If anyone says, I love God. Now if I put my question into the air, how many of you love God? I suspect most every hand would go up. I love God. So we would all be right here in this verse. We would all be right here. If anyone says, I love God, would you say that? Would you be able to say that from the heart? Yes. Yes, I love God. Well, and hates his brother, he is a liar. She is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Guys, we're in bad shape if we got a hit list. Like love your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment. Yet it's so hard to love people, sometimes people in our own home, that we would say, I love God, and yet he's saying, but you don't love him or her, so that means you really don't love me. So listen to this. The measure of your love for God could be measured by the love you have for another person. That's harsh, but that's the truth. Or how about when Jesus, at the upper room, when he was doing the, the last Passover in 13, 34 to 35, he says this, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did he love them? He just washed their feet, took the lowest position as a a humble servant, the thing that none of the other guys would do, and he did it. He humbled himself and loved them. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how are people going to know that we are disciples of Jesus? Not by our fantastic theology, not by how many podcasts are on our iPhone, not by how many verses we've memorized, but rather our love for one another. That's biblical. You may think they'll know you're a disciple by how many books you have on your shelf or how much Bible you got stored up in here. That makes human sense. But what makes biblical sense is when you love your neighbor as yourself and you love the saints with great ferociousness, if I could say it like that, people will know you are a disciple of Jesus. So look how it's connected. Faith in Christ Jesus and proving your faith is genuine, love that you have for all the saints. That's really important. It's really important. May God help us to be better lovers of God and of our neighbor, and especially of the saints. Verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So, how is this faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for the saints, 
How is it being fueled? Well, it's being fueled because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Guys, when we're suffering, when there's trouble, when you turn on the news and it's a wreck, and it always is, whether it's weather or people fighting or another killing or another robbery or another dictator making threats, it's always bad news. But listen, when you are suffering or when the world looks like it's crumbling, you need to realize that heaven is on the horizon. And, and by that, I don't mean we leave this physical world and go to stay in an eternal state of non-matter. That's not biblical. That's more dualism from Plato than it is biblical. The biblical vision of heaven is that the, the, the realm of God literally comes down and cleanses this physical earth. And Jesus Christ rules and reigns from the center of Jerusalem the eternal city. And we, the other nations on the globe, because in Revelation it says the nations bring their glory into that eternal city, implying other nations. Jesus said, as a reward, you rule over this city, you rule over that city. There's going to be other cities in which need government, and some of your rewards for being faithful to him will be your, you're the mayor. You're the governor. You're the congresswoman. But listen, we're headed towards perfection and glory and harmony and beauty and all the stuff that you wish you could do now but just can't because of time restraints or lack of resources or you will be able to do for God's glory. And God's glory and the living of life will be one and the same. Where now we have to fight for it, then it will be no more fight. It'll just be present all the time. So whether you eat or drink in the new heavens and the new earth, you'll be doing it for God's glory. Where now we have to be conscious about it and seek it and ask for help and be diligent. Heaven is coming. There's a hope laid up for us in heaven. God is going to rule. Jesus is going to bring peace. And we're going to be living in that peace for eternity. Listen, I believe able to explore the universe. The universe will be our playground. Distant galaxies no longer so distant and only seen through a telescope. We could talk about that all night, but we gotta, we got to move on. Of this, you have heard before, before what? Before I wrote what I just wrote, in the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul says, you've heard of this hope of heaven. You know what that means? That means when Epaphras came as a missionary to Colossae, he preached the gospel, but he also included the hope of heaven in his gospel presentation. We often leave that out. We, we go blood, cross, repent, guilt, shame, you could be forgiven, and we stop. That's an incomplete gospel, if this is true. If they heard of the hope of heaven, that means he talked about the resurrection, that means he talked about the eternal state, that means that it was much more fuller than what we do. We stop at the cross and the death of Jesus, all of a sudden he's buried, and did he even rise from the dead in your gospel presentation? Is he alive or is he still dead? Listen, a complete gospel, which these Colossians heard beforehand, includes, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you need to turn and repent and trust in Jesus. And yes, he did die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And without the blood of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. But when he was buried, he was also raised to newness of life. And we are headed for his rule forever, which is called heaven friends. That should be encouraging. 
It will not always be so, is the hope we have. And Paul says, it has come to you, verse 6, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now he's saying this, the gospel has come to you by means of Epaphras, as indeed in the whole world this gospel message is bearing fruit and increasing. Now bearing fruit is a, a plant term. It's an agriculture kind of picture. So think about this. I love coconuts. I love coconut water. I love coconut strips. I love coconut oil. I literally will scoop that stuff out like Crisco and eat it. It's delicious. I love it. But coconuts, sadly, cannot grow in my backyard. That's sad. But I have been to some islands, and I've looked at them in the trees, and I've found rotten ones on the ground that fell off, and please, and ooh, it's rotten. You tear it apart. But I'm not climbing that thing because that was way up there. 50 feet? No. But listen, maple trees can grow in my backyard. And I also love maple syrup that's not log cabin. Because that's not maple syrup. That's corn syrup that's not even from corn. They deceive us when they call it corn syrup. When just call it syrup. Let's call it death. Death syrup. Like, this tastes awesome. You know, you're spooning it. Anyway, all over the cereal, you're like, this is fantastic. No, that's death syrup. Don't. But, but legit, real maple syrup that you, you know, you drill a hole in the tree, you pipe that thing, and they put a, a bag to collect all the sap that comes out, and then they boil it down, and it comes out. I got one of those trees in my yard. And did you know about this time, if you're a Trader Joe's fan, like me, you can get maple water, uncooked maple syrup. It tastes like a tree. It's fantastic. I kid you not. It's very tree noty. It's so good. It's like a sweet tree. It's not like a, ooh, this is disgusting. It, it's good. So try it. It has the maple leaf on it. But listen, maple leaves cannot grow in the tropics. Maple trees cannot grow where a coconut tree can grow. Did you know that? Because God has set up certain things to grow in certain soils and certain climates, but not the gospel. Listen, the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world and increasing. There is not a soil, there's not a culture, there's not a people in which the gospel does not grow and bear fruit. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And when the gospel came to this church or to this city of Colossae, it bore a church. It bore a church. And listen, as it does among you, the gospel is increasing not only in the whole world, but among the Colossians. But listen, it's increasing among us. We're seeing the fruit of the gospel among us. Not only of people being converted, but of you and I growing in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus. And by the gospel, we grow. As it's been said, it's not the front door. It's the whole room. Of Christianity. Okay? The gospel is increasing and bearing fruit among us. And listen, I, I want to see the, the gospel expand and increase in the city to a degree where we're just all blown away. Like, what in the world is happening? And then we read Romans 1.16 and we say, wow, it really is the power of God unto salvation. 
for everyone who believes. But if we don't share it, if we don't tell it, if we don't make a, a defense for why we're living the way we're living, and we don't ever give the gospel to anyone, it's never going to bear fruit. So think about it like a seed. If you never plant the gospel seed in the ground, it's never, ever going to grow. Ever. So man, plant some gospel seeds. Tell the gospel to someone. Don't be arrogant. Don't be rude. Don't be self-righteous. Be gentle. Be gracious. Be loving. Offer it as if it's good news, not bad news. Because it is. That's what gospel means, good news. As it also does among you, since the day you heard it, and what happened after they heard it, how do we know that they believed and were saved? Because they understood the grace of God in truth. Now, Paul keeps referring to truth here. Look, in verse 5, the truth. He separates the truth from the gospel because in Colossians, false teaching is coming, non-truth. And then he says here again, the grace of God in truth. In verse 6, he's, he's countering the false ideas that are creeping into the church. He's saying the foundation of truth is the gospel. Stand on it. Don't depart from it. It is the truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. There he is, finally. Epaphras. The gospel grows and produces fruit. And bearing fruit is the image of a tree or a plant that grows and sprouts and produces. Now, Doug Moo says this. We need to take verses 5 and 6 together. Okay, so before we go to Epaphras in verse 7, listen to this. The gospel is authenticated not by its truth only, nor by its power in people's lives only, but by both working in tandem. Let me say that again. The gospel is authenticated not by its truth only, nor by its power in people's lives only, but by both working in tandem. So the picture is of like a gospel tandem kayak. You ever see those things? It's a kayak that has two seats and you have an oar up front and someone else has an oar in the back and you're both rowing. So the, the issue here is you got the truth and you got the stream of the people's lives and they're authenticating this gospel power. The truth of it being spoken, but their lives also authenticating it. And we, listen guys, need to have a both and. Our lives need to be authentically gospel. So we can't come in here on Sunday night and be all Christian. I'm a Christian. And then go out and live like your neighbor who is an utter pagan tomorrow, or maybe tonight, drunk in the back seat, throwing up. I'm a Christian. You're not acting like one. Friends, we need our lives to be authentically gospel. And that means when you screw up, you know what you do? You rehearse the gospel. It's that I'm not saved by my good works. My good works do not approve me to God. Rather, I need God because my works are not good. And Jesus took care of my sin. But listen, we need to be about living differently, not by our own strength. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live in the newness of life, the resurrection life. Our lives need to match our message. Please, please, our lives need to match our message. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us 
your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras, as I said, was a native Colossian. Um, He went from Ephesus where Paul was preaching for two years at the Hall of Tyrannus in the book of Acts. You remember that? And as he was preaching, Epaphras was probably converted there under Paul's teaching. And he, like a church planner does, says, I need to go back to my people and I need to tell them the gospel. They're without hope in the world. They're without Jesus. They're in darkness. And so he goes and he preaches the gospel and it bears fruit. A church is started. And the whole process of new birth of a church begins. And the whole mess. And that's why the letter's written, because of the mess. Do you know that often clarifying truth comes out of the mess? Like, why were the councils ever called? Why was the Nicene Council called? Why, was, um, the Refor- why did the Reformation happen? Why did Luther nail the 95 theses to the castle church door? It was because of a mess. And out of the mess is birthed clarity. And now we have this book of Colossians, which is really clarifying Jesus, who he is, what he expects, what he is like. So the hall of Tyrannus is where Paul was preaching in Acts 19, 8 to 10. And he preached for two years there, reasoning daily. And then Epaphras leaves and he goes east to preach the gospel. He plants the church. Now we're going to quickly move through the back half of this letter. And I mean quick. So verse 9. I have it here. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, what did we hear? Who's the we again? The we is Paul and Timothy, remember? We, Paul and Timothy are together on this letter. And so, from the day we heard of the Colossians' faith, we, Paul and Timothy, have not ceased to pray for you. That's amazing. Paul had never met these Christians He had never been to the church. We find this out later in the letter. And they don't know him, and he doesn't know them. Yet, he says, from the day we heard, the day Epaphras came with the news, we have not ceased to pray for you. Praying for people you never met and don't know, but you care enough to pray about them without ceasing? Are you kidding me? Asking, so here's what he's praying. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is important. We often get hung up on this God's will thing. It's a question I get, especially from teenagers, like looking to go to a school or something. That's when it always comes up. Or like, you know, you're about to transition a job or there's a new opportunity with a new person in a relationship. And you're like, what's God's will? Here, when he says this, when Paul says asking, he's praying, what's he praying for the Colossians? That they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What he's not saying is this. I'm praying that God gives you this outside understanding of what his secret will is for your life that you must find and walk in. And if you don't walk in it, you better watch out for the lightning bolts coming for you because you're about to wreck your life. You're about to go after plan B, C, D, E, F. Fail. Because you didn't walk in God's will. That's not at all how God's will works in the Bible. But we have this idea that we need to find this secret counsel of God and He needs to reveal it for us and He can only reveal it to us in weird subjective ways. Like, God, should I quit my job? Oh, God, should I quit my job? You come to the stop sign. Oh, God, should I quit my my job? Stop. Stop my job. It's God's will that I stop my job. Don't we do this? Meanwhile, God's going, it's not me. It's a stop sign. Stop it. 
The stop sign is there for you to stop thinking about God's will like this. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> that's my interpretation of what God says to you. Maybe a bad interpretation, but that's okay. All right, so here's Don Carson. Don Carson remarks that to think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of my future, my vocation, my needs is another form of self-centeredness. No matter how piously put, worse, it, ex it expunges me from my, my consciousness that the dominant ways in which the Bible speaks of the will of the Lord. Did you know that the Bible is God's will revealed? His will is in 66 books. And it's very clear what he wants you to do. But we want more. We're like, I want to know, what's, what is your will for this decision? And I just heard this recently. I thought it was very helpful. You know that God kind of wants us to grow up a little bit as Christians? To mature? So my daughter, at this stage in the game, she's five, I want her to basically ask me permission for everything. Like, she's up in the freezer. I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm getting the fruit that's way in the back next to my knife collection that I keep in the freezer for such occasions. It's a joke. <laughs> but she has been known to lick the railing. And you've seen the Christmas story? Fire department shows up, right? So I want her to, to, to not be up on a chair, on top of a toy, on top of a Lego uh, ladder, getting the frozen fruit out of the back of the freezer. I want her to say, Dad, can I have some frozen fruit? No. Five minutes till dinner. What are you talking about? You're not going to eat your dinner. But listen, I don't want her, I don't want her to be 20 years old calling me from her apartment saying, Dad, can I have some frozen fruit? No. What? <laughs> Leave me alone. Like, I'm making my own smoothie. If you want a smoothie, make it. Leave me alone. Stop calling me. If you ever call me about this again, but see, the idea is God kind of wants us to grow up. Like, he doesn't want you asking him every little decision and step along the way. He wants you to take his revealed will and use the wisdom he's given you, use the bumps and bruises that you've got along the way and learn from them, and then choose a path. And our amazing sovereign God, your choice is actually his choice. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever and ever. So all we have to stand on is what is revealed in the word and all the secret things are God's. And here's the freeing part. He doesn't expect you to find them out. That's why they're a secret. They're a secret for a reason. We only find out as they happen what is his secret will. Here's Don Carson one more time. He says that the transformation of character and conduct brought about by the renewal of the Christian's mind is precisely what equips such a Christian to test and approve God's will. He's commenting on Romans 12 too. Let me read it. Do not be conformed to this world, pushed into its pattern and mold, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind that, listen, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, His good and acceptable 
and perfect will. So we, we think that means our, we need to find out and test what's God's will, like put our foot in the water. Is it warm enough? And the idea is, as your mind's renewed, how's your mind renewed? The Word, the revealed will of God. As you grow in your understanding of the Word, you're able to know what God's will is. That's what it's saying. It's not saying it's secret and hidden and you've got to figure it out and test it. As your mind is renewed in the Word, you'll know what His will is. You'll know it. So Don Carson again, the transformation of character and conduct brought about by the renewal of the Christian's mind is precisely what equips such a Christian to test and approve God's will. That is, to discover personally and experimentally that his ways are the best. Will I go my way or his revealed will way? Oh, his way is the best. Patience is better than impulse. Being quick to listen and slow to speak is better than just speaking. Being slow to anger is better than being a raging fireball at the click of a finger. Huh, that's amazing. And God's going, I told you. I told you. You should have just read it and listened and asked for help to do it. Listen, God's will is revealed for us to do it, not to think about it, not to meditate on it, if you will, not to memorize it, but to do it. Not to debate it, to do it. His revealed will is for you to do, and it's by his doing, or by his might, that you will do it. All right, verse 11, let's move fast. Did we finish 10? So as to walk, so here's what will happen. As to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, as you know more about his will revealed, you'll increase in the knowledge of God, and you will walk as you gain more understanding of His revealed will, you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What will that result in? You'll be fully pleasing to Him. What will that look like? Bearing fruit in every good work and continually increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, that is a call for you to read your Bible. Like, don't starve yourself. Please. Like, don't do the the verse of the day app. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. How about a chapter a day? You want to go hard? A book a day. Wow. Colossians is only four chapters. You could get that done in about 10 minutes. That's a potty break. Being strengthened with all power. So what happens is you increase in the knowledge of God. You'll be strengthened with all power. Not your own power but His power according to His glorious might. See, the idea is when we walk in the revealed will of God, the Holy Spirit comes in not only to illuminate the Word, but to empower you to live the Word. His job is not just illumination, though it is that. It's to empower you to live it. And if your life is a mess, we know that you're walking by the flesh and not by the Spirit. Because Galatians 5 clearly says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So every time you're in a mess, guess what's happening? You're not in the will of God. You're not walking by the will of God. You're not walking by the Spirit. It's all you at that moment, and you're only to blame. So don't fist to the heavens at God, because He showed you what to do. He gave you His revealed will. He asked you to ask Him for help, and you just won't. I know it's a little harsh, but some of you need to hear that. I need to hear that. I'm the problem. I'm to blame. Not you or you or you or them. 
me. I'm the problem. You're the problem. And I love you enough to tell you that. Giving thanks. I've skipped 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For what? For all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance is the ability to keep going. And Paul desperately wants for this Colossian church them not to divert from the gospel, not to go somewhere else, but to stay on track with the good news and with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, for endurance and patience and joy. That's two fruits of the Holy Spirit. Don't you want to live a life full of patience and joy? I know I do. Man, I want to be a patient person and I want to be a joyful person. I don't want to be an impatient, miserable person. I don't want that. And this is telling me, this intro to Colossians, is how I can endure and be patient and live in joy. This is fantastic. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in lights. Now, PJ just preached this 12, 13, and 14 two weeks ago, so I'm not going to go deep into this. I'm just going to quickly move through it, and, and we'll be done. Paul is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, that would be the Colossians, and what has he qualified them for? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Heaven is coming for them just like he mentioned earlier in uh, the opening chapters. Heaven is coming for them. There's an inheritance. And he has qualified us to share in that inheritance by adopting us as his sons and daughters. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, the delivering is not like Amazon delivers uh, you a package. That's not the delivering. It's the rescuing you from this domain of darkness where we all lived and he's rescuing you into light where there is safety and help and God. So Ephesians 1, uh, 2, 1 to 3, a very familiar verse, but I think you need to understand the domain of darkness that you were in and that I was in. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. To walk is to live. What were you doing? You were following the course of the world. Just the course of the world, whichever way the world's going, whatever's hot, whatever's popular, whichever way they're going, I'm going. Following the course of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So when you follow the course of the world, whatever's going on, you're just going with it, you're literally following Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's all people without Christ. Listen, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Just obeying whatever sinful urge we had. Whatever wouldn't, whatever wouldn't get us arrested, if I can get away with it, I'm on it. Passions of the flesh. That's satanic. But yet everyone's living that way. Everyone's influenced by Satan. Willingly. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we just did what we want. We made our own path. We blazed our own trail. Captain of our fate. Master of our soul. Yeah, that's satanic. Do your thing. Have it your way. Call the shots. That's, that's just the way the world encourages you every day. And it's Satan behind the world encouraging you that way. Wake up and let's wake some more people up. And, and Corinthians... Paul 
pulls the curtain back even more. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, he says, if our gospel is veiled, a veil is, you know, ladies' wedding veil. If there's a veil, it's covering something. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. If people don't see the gospel, if they don't believe the gospel, if they won't receive the gospel, they are perishing. There's a veil there. In their case, those who are veiled, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. For what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, the God of this world has set up the world in such a way where all the things that are not of God are so attractive and beautiful and brilliant and bright and we're attracted to it like a moth to a light in the middle of the night. We just go at it. And Satan's saying, go at it. And we're like, yes. And we're blind. We're blind. But yet, God steps in with light. And what does he do? He delivers us from that domain of darkness that we just read about. And he delivers us like a rescue, not like a package from the postman. He delivers us from the domain of darkness. We were in this domain of darkness. And he transfers us, he rescues us, where? Into the kingdom of his beloved son. So now we Christians have a new king, and we have a new citizenship, and we're headed to a new country. Even though we're still residing here, our citizenship is up there. We kind of have dual citizenship, but this one's going to expire. Thank God. But our citizenship in heaven is the one that will last forever. And we already have it. Like, we have already been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And and what about Jesus? Well, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's Jesus who, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to hold on to. But he humbled himself and made himself like a servant and was obedient to death even death on a cross. And it's by His blood that we have redemption to free us from our willing enslavement to sin. He bought us with His own blood. It's not that we were slaves to sin in a I don't want to be here kind of way, unless you got caught or there's consequences. But most of us, it was I want to be here. This is, I'm willing. I'm, I love you. I'll serve you, sin. Give me a hug. And, and Jesus wakes us up and delivers us, and he redeems us from the power of sin, from the power of darkness, from the clutch of Satan. And how does he do it? He forgives us our sins. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel and the heart of the transfer, the delivery, the redemption. 